Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Good morning and good Shabbos, everyone. Uh, for those who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, and I'm filling in this week for Rabbi Amy Bernstein's usual Torah study class and podcast. And it's just it's just such a pleasure to be here with this group in particular. I love this group. So we're glad to have you too. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Elena. <laughs> wow, look at that. What a welcome. I love all the groups that learn Torah. Uh, I love all the groups that study Torah. What's that? <laughs> so, we this week are in Parashat Ki Tetzeh. This is a great parsha, lots of wonderful Deuteronomy material, Dvarim all over. As you all know, Rabbi Bernstein sticks to the triennial cycle of Torah readings. Um, I, on the other hand, don't. So we'll be hopping around a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sort of freestyle. She, I, I once asked her about why she sticks with that. And she said, you know, she's been teaching Torah for 20 years and she appreciates the discipline of it, sort of keeping through and making sure to read all the pieces of it, having taught Torah for so long. I, on the other hand, have not not been teaching Torah that long, so I sort of, I'm happy to jump around through the Parsha. So, we're going to begin in chapter 25 of Dvarim, chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, verse 17. I'll give you all a minute to get there. I have a different book, so I can't give you page numbers, but chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 17. And if I can get a brave volunteer to read through the end of the chapter. Just a couple of verses, really. Short piece. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How undeterred by fear of God he surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when the Lord your God grants you safety from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion... You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Thank you, Bert. So, the end, this is actually the very end of this parsha. If you look right after that, it continues with Kitavo. So, we get this piece about Amalek. Thoughts, questions, comments. Chapter 25, verse 17. This is why it's good to be able to navigate by chapter and verse. It's a handy skill. I Yeah, I don't either on the Saturday group, actually, because I think it's worthwhile to build that skill. I actually teach all of our bar and bat mitzvah students to work on that as well. So we just saw the piece of Amalek. Questions, comments. Who the heck is Amalek? Who the heck is Amalek? <laughs> it was uh, our Senator Ben Allen's Torah portion at the occasion of his bar mitzvah was this one. He had Amalek. Other thoughts or questions about Amalek? Who was Amalek? Enid asks a great question. Are people familiar with Amalek? This is quite a uh, piece we have here. Is, this, is Amalek a person or a truck? Okay. This is good. We've, let's start from the beginning. What's that? Or a god. Or a god. Excellent questions. I'm so, always fascinated that it says remember to forget. Remember to forget. I love this. So <laughs> we're supposed to remember Amalek and not forget to blot out the name of Amalek. We're supposed to remember to forget them. It is a funny little conundrum that we have here given by God. Amalek 
is from the book of Exodus. Amalek is not a person, an individual, not a god, but a tribe, in fact, some kind of a group of bandits. Um, Bandits? Bandits, marauders, some kind of armed group that attacks the Israelites in the midst of the Exodus. Has According any, to this attack, the stragglers, the poor, and the women, and the children, and the crippled. That's the right. Not, they, they don't attack it head on. That's right. Carol. Like lions. Lions yes. away and Take the, the weak stragglers ones. and the weak. It's a very predatory thing that we're seeing here from Amalek. Other questions. Have people heard of this group before or familiar with this at all? Every year. Every year. Where, where else does Amalek come up? Purim. Purim, that's right. And why? What's the connection there? Haman. That's right. So Haman, we get at Purim, that holiday of all of the costumes and celebration. We're getting here with Amalek this certain... Uh, archetype of the one who sets out to destroy the Israelites, the one who sets out to obliterate the Jewish people, the, the predator, as it were, um, who lies in wait, the enemy. Um, and so we get this commandment here. Remember how Amalek surprised you on the march when you were coming out of Egypt? Therefore, when God grants you safety, uh, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven destroy Amalek entirely, in totality. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, going back. Yeah. Why is it that it says not the Amalek did to you? Because when it says Amalek, that does much singular. Yep. We see that sometimes, like if you see them talking about Israel. Like you'll see sometimes place name, or Moab. Um, you'll sometimes see a place name or a name of a group like that sort of rendered in the singular like that. You also do see in other points, like there's a reference to the Amalekites in Psalms, for instance, as this enemy. So you see it rendered both ways. But it's a good question. Um, other questions about Amalek before we continue? seems pretty straightforward. This is like the... Um, Do you know anything about their background, who they are? That is a good question. We don't know a whole lot about their background and who they are, other than that they were one of these tribal groups, seems to be extant and local to the land of Israel during this time. Well, yeah? One thing for sure, <clears throat> uh, Amalek or the Amalek were singled out for rather special that's right. Indicating that this is really uh, a bad sin. Yes. There is something singularly heinous about Amalek in terms of what happens to them and the way that they are singled out. The Amalek, yeah, go ahead. Nick, does, does two things. Yeah. Amalek, does, does every story need an Amalek? <laughs> it's the ever-present uh, evil. Beautiful question. And the second part is <clears throat> the predicate to the pursuer... The Rodef. Ah, good questions, both of them. So the first question, does every story need an Amalek? Yes. If Amalek didn't exist, would we have had to invent Amalek? Excellent question. Um, I'm not going to answer that definitively because I don't think, I'm not sure, I think it's, yeah, <laughs> trying to get your money's worth here, right? No, I think that, uh, I think you make an excellent point that in order for us to really connect with this story, who is the antagonist in that way? Who is the other? Who is the enemy? If you're going to write a good conflict story, where's the other side of the conflict? Um, and the second part, remind me, the second question? The Rodef. The uh, Yeah, I think you could, uh, you could make that argument that this is sort of the 
proto-Rodaif model. The Rodaif is the pursuer. The Rodaif famously gets used in Talmudic material uh, to open up a whole discourse about when it's justified to take a life, when you are justified in killing someone. And you are justified in killing the Rodaif, the pursuer, one who is out to kill you. Uh, so you could look at this uh, certainly along those... We're instructed to eradicate Amalek wherever we come upon them. If that's connected to Rodaif, last week we mm-hmm. had Tzedek Tzedek to Dolph. Yes. Which is justice, justice, you shall yeah. pursue. Right. So that was a case of this is what we should be pursuing. And I guess this is the opposite. That's correct. So pursuit in last week's parsha is rendered in the context of justice, that one is supposed to pursue justice. It's kind of like, you know, in the uh, in our own American founding texts where we get life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's that same kind of pursuit. Rodaif gets rendered very differently in Talmudic and legal material in that discourse about the pursuer, if that makes sense, even though it is absolutely the same Hebrew. Go ahead. So in the, uh, <coughs> jumping around as yeah. we have liberty to do it, yeah. justice, justice shall be pursued. I was at home and I was reading Chef Gold, and her interpretation, which I really liked, which was one of the many interpretations we did not discuss here, was justice within and justice without. Beautiful. How you treat yourself and how you are in the world. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to share that with you because I thought um, her, hers was great. But... If we Thank you. take this, um, what, what we've read, this reading, and we apply that to today, mm-hmm. is that today, is this the message of today? You know, some bad stuff has happened to people, to anyone. Mm-hmm. We need to shut that door. We need to not even mention that name. Don't talk about it. Don't wallow in it. And move forward. Is this kind of what this... Well, how can you pursue it then? I think if you were to render sort of a spiritual understanding of Amalek as a condition or a state um, of being or a state of justice or lack thereof. Something terrible to you or a group or whomever. But when it says don't even mention, you should mention the name, not the memory. So here, this gets into some of the discomfort around Amalek is that I think it's a beautiful reading to render Amalek in this way. And in the text, the shot, the surface level reading of it is that Amalek is this group, and we are supposed to wipe out Amalek anytime we see them, hear them, or encounter them. Um, I'm going to push this a little bit further. <clears throat> the book of Samuel, we get the beginning of the Israelite kings. The very first Israelite king, and this comes in the wake of Shoftim, of judges, of the warlords and the anarchy that we get around that time, that people cry out for some kind of order. And so we wind up getting this whole story arc with Samuel uh, anointing the first Israelite king, King Saul. King Saul loses the right to be the king of the Israelites. What does he do that vexes God so much? He's in a war with with Amalek, with the Amalekites. And he doesn't destroy all of them and all of their things. He captures, he takes a lot of their things as, uh, yeah, as the spoils of war. And God says, I don't want your, I don't want this stuff. I want your obedience. Your instructions were to utterly eradicate Amalek. So in these texts, Amalek is much more of a group of people, um, a specific group of people. And this gets into, I think, a very, uncomfortable place for Jewish people. We are 
the one person, we're the group of people in the world who suffered from the most advanced genocide in history. And I say that very carefully, but intentionally. I'm distinguishing from the widespread deaths of Native Americans that are oftentimes termed a genocide, or for instance, the Rwandan genocide. Um, And the reason I say advanced is that the Shoah that we as Jewish people experienced was industrialized. It wasn't smallpox, it wasn't machetes, it was this entire manufactured industry devoted to eradicating people. And here we have that memory and that legacy running headlong into this space where we're told to wipe out this people. This is a really tough place to sit as Jews, I think. Go ahead, Bert. Doesn't it, doesn't it sit in the same context we saw several weeks ago? Mm-hmm. It's always disturbed me about tear down their altars. When you get into the land, show no pity. Uh, there, there's another line in here somewhere. If uh, I think it was last week. Uh, if someone among you uh, says something against God, mm-hmm. have no pity. Just kill. I forget what the exact context is. Mm-hmm. And that is. this has always been very difficult for me. Those who wish to show that Judaism is a violent religion and uncaring very often pull these things out of context, just as some people pull things out of context from other traditions, sacred literature, whether it be Quran or or whatever, to prove that they are not good. So this is very troubling for us, but it's also... For PR reasons, it would really be nice if it wasn't there. <laughs> Not good for the Jews is b- perhaps Bert's, uh, to paraphrase Bert's comment. Good. So how do we deal with that? Excellent question. We're going to continue. We're going to unpack this a little bit in this Parsha in particular. Go ahead. I'm totally confused, which is not unusual. Maybe we can help. read this, it says, does not destroy stop thinking, stop Because God is not going to protect you, so don't worry about it. That's the way I. Well, blot out their memory is a way of saying wipe them out or kill them all. Yeah. Isn't that that what the. So, in just a second, we're going to glance at Exodus. Why not? While we're on the topic. Go ahead, George. Yeah, I interpret it as never again. Ah. Which doesn't mean that you destroy it. You prevent it from happening. You could rebuild Germany or whatever and, and uh, rebuild it by, and then prevent other evils. So I look, but you can also destroy people. Very good. So a modern corollary, perhaps. Uh, the Nazi fascist regime needed to be destroyed by means of a European ground war, and then came the Marshall Plan. And then came uh, a measure of redemption and rebuilding and rehabilitation of a society afterward. Um, Excellent suggestion as well. We're going to jump back and see what Exodus has to say about it very briefly. Somebody who's good at jumping through chapters and such without page numbers. Exodus chapter 17. Go to about verse 15 or so. 14, 15. Yeah. Yeah. He said it means hand upon the throne of Adonai. Adonai will be at war and Amalek throughout the ages. Thank you. All right. So it's an unending war. You're not going to wipe it out. 
So, to come back together, to Judith's point, we just heard Amalek, that Adonai will be at war with Amalek through the ages. Um, We seem to have something that, uh, as a rejoinder to George's idea, that maybe we can destroy this state of Amalek being and then rehabilitate whatever is in the wake of it. Uh, That first Exodus piece seems to stand pretty firmly that that may not be the project, saying that Adonai will be at war with Amalek forever. Go ahead. I think this substantiates the idea that there is an evil inclination in man that will constantly reappear and it has to be dealt with forever. Hold on to that because we're actually, that's the direction we're going to be going in today is the nature of certain kinds of hatred. Now, because we're just having so much fun jumping around, we're going to jump back to this week's Parsha. So, I hope you kept a finger in that part of the book to help you. Exodus, I didn't even that's okay. We just—I just wanted to lift that one point that Adonai was going to be at war through the ages. What was so, Exodus what? Seventeen. Hang on, we're not—we're going back to Deuteronomy now. I, I'm just—I'm just throwing curveballs at you left and right here. I know. What fun to be jumping through the Torah like a set of hyperlinks. So. It was three ninety nine. It was three ninety nine. All right. So now back to this week's parsha. I'm going to give everyone a minute to get there. We're going to chapter twenty three of Deuteronomy. Chapter twenty three of Deuteronomy, verse eight. Let's give it a minute. See, this is I'm making sure that you're all awake and alert for Shabbos here. Okay, you shall not abhor. So are we there yet? Chapter 23 of Deuteronomy. In the Greek, what? In the Greek, 1176. All right, thank you. Who wants to read verses 8 and 9 from chapter 23? Should be short. not abhor an Edomite, for such is your kin. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, for you were a stranger in that land. Okay. That's all? That's all. Well, no, 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 keep going, actually. Sorry, sorry, my apology. Keep going. Children born to them may be admitted into the congregation of Adonai in the third generation. Perfect, thank you. So this is curious. Now we have these two pieces from the same parsha. We're still in Kitetse. We have the admonition to blot out, to utterly destroy Amalek wherever they are encountered. And then we have this piece about the Egyptians, that you shouldn't hate the Egyptians. You are strangers in their land. You know, and after three generations, if you're all part of the same people, that they can actually be part of your same people. Why after three generations? Ah, very good. So we get more contemporary uh, rabbinical sources that talk about three generations are what it takes to essentially integrate into a new people, as it were, wholesale. Um, there's a very interesting contemporary tshuva from Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, actually, uh, in the land of Israel, who said, in with respect to Karaites, does anyone know what Karaites are? These were Essentially, they broke off from Judaism in the medieval era in the six, seven hundreds or so because they didn't agree with the rabbinic project and the Talmud and the like. Uh, they 
agreed, they stuck to a very, very literal reading of Torah and kept to that, but they disagreed with a lot of the rabbinic piece. So they and uh, the Karaites and Judaism, sort of normative rabbinic Judaism, parted ways. A few years back, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef said that Karaites can marry into Judaism, that they can become part of us, actually, that they're not, it's not like other uh, religions who would remain not Jewish unless they converted, but that Karaites are close enough that they can sort of fold into it. The reason I bring that up is that Egyptians in this text seem to be something that in three generations just become us. Are there still Karaites? There are still Karaites in the world. I believe there are about 40,000 of them in the world today. Um, in the land of Israel and scattered throughout the U.S. So there's a handful of Karaites. So anyway. How long ago did the rabbi say it was okay to intermarry? Uh, this is a couple of, was I think within a decade or two. Oh, recently? Yeah, pretty recently. In any event. So part of why I wanted to bring this piece about the Egyptians, think about what Pharaoh did to us. Pharaoh cast every baby Israelite boy into the Nile. That's getting pretty close to genocide itself, and yet the Egyptians get a pass. Thoughts, questions, comments? Moses survived mm-hmm. because of Egyptian. It says here, there's a comment here, that what the Egyptians and the Edomites did was physical, not spiritual. Ah. It was a physical slavery. Mm-hmm. And so, ultimately, that could be gotten past. But it's the spiritual piece that really, I mean, and if we go back, mm-hmm. excuse me, uh, Amalek mm-hmm. didn't fear God. So that was a spiritual destruct, an attempt to spiritually destroy the Jews. Very good. Uh, did I see a hand over this way? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I, I, I was thinking along the same lines that the, the and I'm so. No, please. But the, the Okay. An interesting, uh, an, an interesting argument. I appreciate it. Uh, having to figure out. How do you how do you square this vis-a-vis the rodif? So to to stick with that comment with Hannah's comment just a moment longer. Uh, it seems to be important to bring justice perhaps to the individuals responsible rather than a collective punishment. And you can't be held responsible for the sins of your parents. And perhaps you can't be held responsible. Perhaps you can't. That's one possibility. That it goes generation to generation. Bert, what were you about to say there? Yep. The Which is that? Of our shall be visited. The bad, the bad things, the good things, however, for a thousand generations. Right. I think that's more that's metaphoric, metaphoric than legal. So, in some ways, I don't know that it's a matter of sort of a meted out crime and the punishment fitting the crime, but I think there is some truth to the idea that what our parents' generations do continues to resonate with us. We were talking about this in the Saturday group last week. Um, Let's contrast the Marshall Plan and what happened with the end of uh, Nazi Germany and the end of World War II to the Civil War in the United States. Sherman was pretty effective in destroying the economy and the 
society of the South, but Reconstruction wasn't a terribly successful project. Uh, And the fact that in many ways we weren't successful in rehabilitating the South in the wake of that war, well, to this day the South is the most impoverished part of this country. In many ways it is lacking in education. It is lacking in uh, great amounts of opportunity. And we still see the reverberations of hatred in our generation today because of our inabilities in some ways to reconcile and rehabilitate this regime that I think justly needed to have been destroyed. So in that sense, yes, the sins of the parents reverberate down through the generations even, not just to the children's generation, but generation to generation, in some ways sort of a darker uh, flip side of Lador Vador, in fact. And even the kinds of systemic oppression and racism we deal with in society today, it's not like it's disappeared. It's not like the, the North won the Civil War and that all went away. We're still wrestling with the reverberations of some of those injustices in our own time. Go ahead. Is there a theological justification today for the idea of destroying the homes of the terrorists and the parents and the families who are not involved with their kids? I see you're bringing the easy questions this morning. (laughs) What is the theological... No one seems to express what is the theology behind some of the demolitions that the IDF conducts against the homes of some of these terrorists that they've captured? Presumptively, I don't know if innocent is the right word, but they weren't the cause of the terrorism. That's a tough, tough question, and I'm not sure that I'm going to... Well, let me say one thing first. Um, One thing that's very interesting to me in terms of studying the Israeli Defense Forces as as an organized military is the way in which they fold in military ethicists into their operations. They have an entire code um, called Toar HaNeshek, which uh, translates to... uh, the purity of arms. I would say that it really connotes the purity of use of force and the way in which that can be done. Um, I don't want to... I'm reluctant to put together a a theology in justifying it, but I would answer from military ethicists that I've heard speak on this will speak to the reality that the kinds of terrorism that intentionally... Uh, target and seek to wreak violence upon non-combatants and innocent people, that those those sentiments don't grow up in a vacuum by and large. They grow up in context of certain kinds of communities and certain kinds of groups that reinforce and socialize people to those realities. It's In some ways, I would draw a corollary to the way in which certain internet um, sites have unified and have reinforced certain kinds of prejudice prejudice and hatred in our society. And so the way in which some of these ethicists go about justifying it is that those the sentiment that breeds that kind of terrorism comes out of entire communities. That said, ethically speaking, it's a very, very difficult supposition. I don't want to minimize or even say that I'm sitting here to fully justify those actions, but I do want to say that this is a that ethically it's a very challenging preposition to handle. Is there a 
never heard of articulated. And I think the Orthodox community in Israel say this is all right. I mean, people do it. What published material is there? So the material that gives rise, that interacts with a lot of the ethics and combat doctrine around the Israeli Defense Forces, legally from a Jewish traditional standpoint, like we're talking halakha and Jewish law, comes out of that set of materials you brought up actually earlier about the rodeif and the conditions under which one is permitted to exercise violence against the pursuer, against the enemy. In some ways you could say that about the Six-Day War, that that was a war in which Israel fired the first shots, but they did so against clear, what was a clear rodef in that sense. Um, so, yeah, you could get that, the strike on the OSIRAC reactor in 82, uh, I think, I don't know. But um, yeah, that the whole genre and literature of rodef is what gives us uh, the ability to operate in that way. Go ahead, George. On a military basis, like in World War II, one whole city in Germany, the purpose of which was to destroy the will to fight. Yes. So So I do want to draw a distinction between this doctrine of total war that we get in that emerges in World War One actually for the very first time in human sort of civilization. You get glimmers of it before, as I mentioned with Sherman, but this idea of destroying the enemy's entire society rather than their armed forces emerges with strategic bombing in World War One, and we get its full um, manifestation in World War Two. As Douglas, uh, General Douglas MacArthur famously said, you know, if we lose this war, we're all going to be tried as war criminals. Um, so it's its own certain commentary on it. And I do want to draw a distinction between that kind of doctrine and what the Israelis do. The Israelis, I, I would say that if the Israelis were conducting a campaign of total war, um, they'd have obliterated Gaza by now. Um, that Israeli combat doctrine is far more selective than that particular vision of total war. But World War II was an existential kind of conflict like we don't really see in the world today. So, it, it, so it's worth holding in its own sort of ethical space, slightly distinct from Israeli questions of ethics and use of force. Israel is not that they are not fighting for their life. So I would quote Rabbi Daniel Hartman, who said, who spoke to a group here at KI from the Shalom Hartman Institute, who said that Israel is not in the same existential place of conflict that they once were, that uh, Israel is a state with uh, nuclear armed submarines a nuclear second strike capability, which means nobody can outright destroy Israel without being destroyed themselves. They live in the same strategic place that the United States does now. Um, and so Rabbi Hartman was saying to us that What's challenging is that oftentimes we think of Israel with the mentality of the Israel that lived in 48 and 67, where it was on the brink of existential destruction, whereas it may not, exi may not live in that space any longer, which is, 
again, I'm quoting Rabbi Hartman here, uh, who I think is a, a very, very thoughtful Jewish leader. So it's, it's also worth holding how these situations change and evolve over time. Judith. One of the basic questions, I think, in all civilizations is, do the ends justify the means? Mm. And generally we hear the side that says, no, they do not. Yeah. But this is the opposite point of view. Mm-hmm. In some cases, yes, they do. So I want to get into... How does Amalek differ from Egypt? Um, and that question of the ends justifying the means and how these things, these kinds of hatred, how do we deal with them or reconcile them? Uh, rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi emeritus of the United Kingdom, takes this issue head on. And he does so through almost the opposite that you might expect. He does so in a really counterintuitive way. Uh, he brings in Perkei Avot, Mishnah Avot, and he seeks to understand this through the context not of hate or of violence, but of love. Mishnah Vote 5 reads, Whenever love depends on a cause and the cause passes away, the love passes. But if love does not depend on a cause, then the love will never pass away. What is an example of love that depended on a cause? That of Amnon for Tamar. If we remember the assault of Amnon assaulting Tamar. What is an example of a love which did not depend on a cause? The love of Jonathan and David. So he makes the point that if you want to understand the difference between Amalek and Egypt and understand the difference between certain kinds of hatred, you have to understand the difference between different kinds of love. He says Amnon loved Tamar, I put quote air quotes around love, because she was forbidden to him. It was this condition that made him love Tamar. Once he assaulted her, the condition had changed. We have down from the second uh, from Second Samuel, Amnon hated Tamar intensely. He hated her even more than he had ever loved her. The operative element here was the condition around the, with which the love was based, which was purely her unavailability. Now let's contrast that with Jonathan and David. Who were Jonathan and David? King David. King David. Very good. King David is the is the king who comes after King Saul. After King Saul loses the right to uh, be the Israelite king, David is the uh, successor. The thing is, though, there was this evil spirit afflicting Saul, and he kept trying to kill David throughout all of this period. He kept trying to actually spear him uh, physically. Jonathan was King Saul's son. So this is an interesting piece here. David loves the son of the guy who's constantly trying to kill him. And Jonathan loves the guy who is overthrowing and replacing his own father. That's pretty unconditional love. There are so many incentives to stand against them loving one another, and yet theirs is a famous love that we have from Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible, this love that we had for one another, that it isn't about a condition in stark contrast to I'm known. Isn't it forbidden also, societally? Okay, so... And sexually? So if you're talking about theirs, if you frame it as a sexual love that the two of them had, then that would have been a very tricky thing within the context of ancient Israelite society. Um, A lot of modern commentaries do make theirs, render it as a romantic love. Tanakh seems to have it as some kind of... Brotherly love. Perhaps. Bromance. I love it. Who said bromance? Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Um, So... (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah. Are the same age? What's that? They're the same age. David and, and Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah, they're contemporaries. So what Rabbi Sachs does with this piece is to turn that love and those conditions of love to apply that to hatred. What happens with the Egyptians that they move to enslave the Israelites, the Jews? Before all that exodus business, what was our relationship? Joseph. Welcomed us. They welcomed us. Joseph served the Pharaoh. There was a famine in Israel. And so Joseph brings his whole extended family down, his clan. He brings the Israelites down into Egypt. And the Egyptians welcome them with open arms. We're friends. We're buddies. But then. But then. What (laughs) happens then? There's a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. (laughs) Yes. So I'm going to read. There's too many of these people. Don't flip to this part of the book. I'm just going to read it aloud for you all. From the beginning of Exodus. The Israelites were fertile and prolific and increased greatly, and the land was filled with them. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Thank you, Bert. And he said, look, the Israelites are too great for us. Let us deal with them shrewdly. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting us. Go ahead. That also reminds me of modern-day Israel. Say more. Isn't that a, you know, one of the concerns as far as if it stays a single state or if they go to two states as far as the... Demographic concerns. Yes, this idea of are there too many of them for us, that us and them question about the numbers of it is part of a lot of the demographic conversation in and around two-state solutions. Um, I want to, yeah. That's what the war was about, that we were surrounded by Arabs, and we would just have Arabs in our midst more more numerously, but... What's changed? So y'all should know by now I love teaching about all of this Israeli military history. I just have a blast with it. But um, I do want... What's that? (laughs) But I do want to keep it somewhat bracketed on Amalek and Egypt. Um, You're right to point out, though, without getting fully into those questions about the contemporary Israeli military question, you are correct to say that this question of demographics is one that reverberates through the ages. Yeah? It also means that the Jews stayed separate. Yeah. It also meant that they were a distinct and discrete group that was separate from the Egyptians. Now, what do we know about the ancient Egyptians? They lived in a rough neighborhood. The earliest known historical account of a battle with actual strategy and tactics is the Battle of Kadesh in the year... 1270 BCE, and it's the Egyptians. The very earliest recorded military anything that we have is the Egyptians fighting with their neighbors. Uh, This, regardless of the way in which one looks at the historicity of events in Exodus or the Torah or the Hebrew Bible, we do know historically that the Egyptians were in a pretty constant state of war um, in the ancient world with all of their different neighbors, through all of these different pharaohs, through all of these generations. So the point that Rabbi Sachs makes is that the Egyptian fear of the Israelites is completely rational. Now, that said, that doesn't make it justified. Something can be rational without being justified. We have no account of the ancient Israelites having any interest in conquering Egypt. Um, As Sachs points out, to explain that something can be rational yet unjustified, he said, after a plane crash, you might be rationally afraid to fly. 
but your fear is not borne out by statistics. Flying is still statistically far safer than driving or anything like that. The fact that there just was a plane crash doesn't make it any more likely that you would suffer the same fate. So while your fear may be rational, it may also be unjustified. So what Sachs does with this, he says that the way you get out of a rational fear that is unjustified, well, that's through reason. You have to think it through. You have to reason your way through it because you can have rational anxieties that may not be justified. Linda. At the point which you're speaking, the Jewish people were not neighbors. They were among the Egyptians. They were not outside the borders trying to conquer and come in. They were already there. In our narrative, that's correct. And we're playing on the rational yet unjustified Egyptian fear of the other in that sense. They didn't show up with a great big army, which is why I say it's unjustified. Or armed, armed, yeah. And, yeah, the Egyptians were in a constant state of war with people. Uh, Their fear of... The U.S.'s constant fear as a nation of the Arabs living in this country. Okay, American... It's a... I mean, it's not everybody, but it's certainly publicized as a great fear of our president, for instance, that uh, we have all these terrorists living among us. So here's an interesting paper I once read. It was a cultural anthropological piece I read in college that talked about Russian culture. And it was talking about how uh, Russian culture contains some degree of xenophobia and fear of outsiders and others. And there were cultural anthropologists that sought to link that directly to the invasions of Genghis Khan and the Mongols in the 1200s, that these were people who had wrought such utter and profound and complete destruction to Russian cities that they found that it taught, it imparted a certain kind of fear or hostility toward the other. Now, whether you... In our case, however, I think it's because of what we've done around the world that makes us afraid of what someone might do to us. Okay, so let's take this more generally, and then I want to take it to the American place, too. Xenophobia, in some ways, is a rational thing, the fear of the other. If you come out of any kind of a situation in which there is scarcity, in which there is not enough for everyone, fear of someone who is different and other than you and might want to take what you have becomes rational. Is it justified? That becomes the operative question. So let's take the American example, then. Can it ever be justified? Can it ever be justified? So let's, let's linger with that American example that Judith brings up. Fear that Americans have of Muslims. This became particularly pronounced in the wake of September 11th, of the terrorist attacks um, back in 2001. Rational, maybe not justified, in terms of if you were to look at the numbers and the people and the way in which, these, in which Muslim communities have been peaceful and have sought to integrate into American society. Um, and yet, there's a lot of fear. We see this dynamic playing out in our national discourse. Fears around immigrants. Um, are they bringing drugs or crime or the like? Are they like fear of the other in that sense? Yeah, go ahead. I kind of want to challenge this. Please. I don't, I don't really think that the fear is rational. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like, to kind of step back and look at it, it doesn't matter what demographic you're looking at. Mm-hmm. You can know that one person doesn't represent the whole 
unless you allow them to. So that's like the same thing like me, I am African American, mm-hmm. I have a rational fear mm-hmm. against Southerners or white people. Right. So like at some point we need to take accountability for it and like let that be where it was mm-hmm. and then choose how we look at Thank you for pushing back against this idea of the rational in that sense, which is sort of what Sachs says when he says the antidote to the rational yet unjustified fear is to, is reason, is to actually think about it, is to engage with it in that sense, is, to, is not to sit in this place of unjustified emotion. But you actually have to come out of that at a certain point. I think you're absolutely right. And you shouldn't use the word rational because that means reason. Right. It's it's a understandable maybe. He's saying it comes out of experience, but at the same time it has to be transcended. If there's a word that's better than rational, I'd be open to that. But our own history in this country, after Pearl Harbor was bombed, what we did to our own Japanese citizens. That's right. And we interned them. So was that rational? Not justified? And maybe, maybe after 9-11, we didn't go to that because of our history. Okay. So, first of all, learning from our history is so important. That is a piece of how we can transcend the unjustified fears and emotion and the things that resonate and reverberate with us. Um, I very much appreciate this critique that perhaps rational is the wrong word to describe what Sachs is alluding to. That if he's alluding to a fear that one might arrive at because of one's experiences, but that still may not be justified, I think y'all get where I'm coming yes, yes. with this. Yeah. It's just the wrong word. Yeah, and that's fa- I, I think that's a fair critique of, uh, of this idea. Go ahead, two points. Um, so it's more experiential. Yeah. Based on past experience, you know, I, um, I'm a little off topic, but the message is the same. I just was doing a Deepak Chopra a seven-day uh, meditation on fear and anxiety, mm-hmm. and what he said is, and what really resonated with me, when you're in that situation, like getting on a plane, um, if you've had an experience, that's the fact that you now have anxiety mm-hmm. because of this, you're meeting it with fear and anxiety, that that's fake news. It's an old, it's an old response. You can mm-hmm. just say, I'm meeting this with calm and with ease. With Beautiful. Reasoning, reasoning it out. Yeah. Cetera, Beautiful. Reason. So, right, just, I'm not going to do that. My body's giving me some fake news that I should, uh, you know, round up every Japanese American. But actually, let me meet this with calm and with ease. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I think what you said even <laughs> takes what Sachs said to another level, that he speaks about reason as being the antidote to that, which is a very intellectual, heady kind of response to that. What you're talking about is more holistic. It's more spiritual in that sense, that it's not just the intellect that is going to get us out of these places of irrational, unjustified hatred in that way. I think it's more than intellect. Yes, I agree. That's why I love this piece. That it's a bigger and deeper human project than just rationing, like, in that sense. So I want to bring, okay, uh, three points, and then I want to come back to the the text. Four, even. Yeah, George, go ahead. I want to introduce a term that was used to describe Hitler and his propaganda, the first things you take over 
kitchen where a guy by the name of, I think it was Gilbert, a, a social scientist, talked that Hitler created pseudo-cultural paranoia. Mm. And that is happening oh, here too, or at least for some people. Yeah. And he describes why the Germans followed Hitler. Point well taken. Pseudo-cultural and as Proverbs teaches us, in Kol Chadash Tachat Hashemesh, there is nothing new under the sun yeah. in that sense. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was wondering whether getting back to the Amalekites. Yeah. Um, which is where we started. <laughs> We're going back there anyway. Go ahead. Take us back there. To what extent is the anti Semitism, the alt right, the issues that we're seeing, not just in Charlottesville and whatever, but that is throughout Europe, mm-hmm. etc., and whatever, they seem to me to fit into the Amalekite group rather than the Egyptian group. Okay. This is precisely where Sachs goes with this. So Amalek is a little different than the Egyptians. The Egyptians from this place of unjustified, uh, irrational fear acted uh, to in, in violently. They acted to, to enact oppression in this sense. Amalek attacks the weak, the infirm, the children, the sick. There is a reason that today bombing a hospital is considered a war crime. If you have the most elementary of decency, you don't instruct your military to go bomb the other side's hospitals. That's the why the, the Red Cross, why other kinds of medics, it's considered a war crime to attack them. That we've known ever since the time of the Torah that that is it's completely morally bankrupt. And this is where Sachs draws a distinction between what he calls, and again, I'm, I'm almost reluctant to, to use this terminology because I, think, I, I appreciate the critiques we've had about the term rational here, but Sachs wants to draw a, a disti- he wants to distinguish between what he's calling rational and irrational hate. So he's distinguishing, let's not even play in those terms, but the hatred of the Egyptians versus the hatred of Amalek. There's something completely irrational and vicious about the hatred of Amalek. He draws a linkage between that and, say, the blood libel in the Middle Ages when there was this story that Jews would abduct Christian babies and kill them to use their blood in making matzahs for Passover. And this justified all kinds of violence against Jews in the medieval era. It doesn't make sense. It, like, it's not a matter of rational, irrational. It's just completely nonsensical. And yet, it was the justification for great violence. Um, we get reverberations of that in more recent times with uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion, this idea that there is a shadowy cabal of Jews that somehow run all the world's institutions secretly. It doesn't make sense. Again, the whole the tropes about the international Jew that you see taking this now to our contemporary era and certain kinds of neo-Nazi groups, all of this stuff about the international Jew and conspiracies, they don't make sense either. There is something, and he would, uh, Rabbi Sachs wants to draw that linkage to say that there is similarity between the Amalek who would kill the weak and the sick and the infirm and the children because they could with that kind of insanity around those kinds of conspiracies, that that's very different from Egyptian fear 
of what the other might do to them. Go ahead. Yeah, I remember at the beginning when Carol talked about Amalek and the because they could speak. Mm-hmm. And it, for some reason, that melee massacre was coming to my mind as we were talking about it. Melee? Melee. Yeah. That In Vietnam. just thought maybe just because their fear it becomes so strong, maybe these little kids have bombs to us. It was like how. I can't see the Israeli army doing that. I guess when you were talking about the ethics of mm-hmm. the Israeli army, that that wouldn't necessarily be the way somebody in charge would have just thought, oh, yeah, I can just do that. I can. So war crime is a useful paradigm for understanding what this is we're talking about. You brought up the Milai massacre where I believe an army uh, platoon or squad or something marched into a village and massacred people. Uh, children. Children, yeah, civilian, clear non-combatants. Uh, we could also look at, say... The recent Iraq war, when you have the Blackwater mercenary group marching into an Iraqi village and machine gunning people. Um, in Israel, the corollary I might make, there was a story of a would-be attacker who went to stab Israeli security or something, and he was shot and injured but detained. He, they took him alive, and they had him detained on the sidewalk, and an Israeli soldier uh, calmly and in cold blood cocked his weapon and shot him dead after he was already detained. And this was a great controversy in Israel, and he was tried for it. Yes, it still is very controversial um, because some of these conditions of violence and war and injustice in that way can wreak havoc on the moral compasses of the people involved. Um, I'm not saying if I were there what would happen to my brain. Right. And I was going to comment too that when you were talking about the what people feel about Jews and mm-hmm. all the, somebody asked me when I worked at a law firm, another mm-hmm. coworker, whether um, what was it if we had animal sacrifice and oh. you know the only thing he didn't say was do you have you know horns horns that was the only yeah, that was his well and he was really somebody that got promoted at the firm and. So there is ignorance as well. That plays a role as well. And um, speaking of which, not to ruin everybody's Shabbat, there are actually Samaritans that still live in the land of Israel and still perform sacrifices as part of their worship of God. You can actually go to Samaritan villages to see their Passover sacrifices that they offer every year. This is an ongoing thing. These are not the good Samaritans. The bad. <laughs> the good Samaritans and the bad Samaritans. No, these are. It's another distinct religious expression and group that lives in the Middle East and yes there is the parable of the Good Samaritan and there are still very tiny Samaritan communities in this world today um, if you look at who knew and you look at I mean the uh, the rituals around Kapara that we see in certain Orthodox communities of the swinging the chicken around your head around Yom Kippur I mean there's I, I don't let me put it like this the tropes around Jews having horns and the like I think are sheer ignorance and there are lots of strange religious practices out in the world today. <laughs> about the way it was asked that made me feel like this wasn't somebody that was going to treat me very well. Right. Forward. Absolutely. Go ahead. And then Bert. Sorry. You have to rescue me from this because I, I yeah. find myself confused about responsibility. Sure. How do I... I looked at the acts and theology of ISIS. Mm-hmm and drew a conclusion that that was a religious belief that motivated them to do what they're doing. So is it rational for me to look at that and draw a conclusion that that form of Islam 
which has fairly wide acceptance in the Middle East or acknowledgement and has implications, is that now irrational? Am I in fear of that or am I distaste or am I honest or is it rational? So this is precisely where I wanted to take us to conclude today, which is that in the 1940s, if you were to look at the rise of fascism, I don't believe from a historical standpoint that that was something that could have been negotiated away, that there was going to be a conflict at that point. And that conflict wound up being a horrendous one that had to be met with force of arms. There's a certain kind of hatred that was on the march that had to be met with force. Was it because of economics? There are a great many reasons, and and I would absolutely pick out economics as one of the drivers of it. Um, But I would also suggest that the economics created the conditions under which uh, an ideology such as Nazism could take root and take hold of a society in that way. Um, Sachs wants us to look at the difference between these kinds of hatred. The one that comes out of fear that perhaps can be allayed, perhaps can be disarmed, perhaps can be reasoned with, perhaps can be... um, this, This piece that you shared with us about disarming those responses within ourselves uh, to certain kinds of emotions that push our buttons and trigger us, that finding ways out that aren't just, you know, rational in the head, but are also spiritual in the body and, and speak to the ways in which we get triggered in those ways. There are certain kinds of hatred that perhaps we can deactivate in that way. Perhaps there are kinds of hatreds that we cannot deactivate that way. The question, and this is where the great wisdom and discernment comes in, is being able to understand the difference. And this is a very, very tricky question for our own time. When is it that we need to sit down and have an an earnest and serious dialogue with people that we really disagree with? As they say, you don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And... When is it we have to be firm and resolute in opposing certain kinds of hatred? That there isn't necessarily a conversation to be had with certain kinds of neo-Nazis and white supremacists and uh, hate groups, plainly. And then the discernment and the wisdom it takes to know the difference. Bert, you had a hand up a moment ago. Go ahead. So? (laughs) Two hands right in a row. Again, am I just, what do I do with this? ISIS that wants to kill innocent people. What do I do with beheadings? What do I do in terms of is my fear rational? Is my distrust rational? As I think it is because it's based on a theology that, that probably fits. So if this is the kind of fear that you can't conquer with reason because reason is what leads you to the conclusion. There, go ahead. <laughs> right. Religion is a very, very, very powerful force. And I forget who said this. It was a rabbi. It can be a force for good, we hope, and can also be a force for evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the history of man, people have used religious justification to do some really horrible things. 
Howsomever, if you look at the total number of people killed in religious wars and those killed in non-religious wars, the religious wars are but a small, a small piece of it. I would be very hesitant to to tar religion with the uh, weight of ISIS, and in particular to tar Islam with ISIS, because the vast majority of Muslims in the world uh, do not subscribe to violence and do not subscribe to anything like what ISIS is doing. Thank you, Bert. I was just going to say that the danger we have is turning ISIS into the other. All of, yes. And and doing to them... Yeah. There are and ISIS is truly terrible. Yeah. Yes, but you said turn ISIS turn ISIS into the other. It, it, I think it may be the other, but Islam is not. Right. Yeah. But to, to you to use a brush that is too yeah. broad. Right. And not to understand what it is that we really are hating. There may be strains of Salafist, Wahhabist, mm-hmm. fascism mm-hmm. that. There is Jewish that we cannot negotiate with. There's Jewish fascism too, as Bert points out. If anybody is familiar with the Kach party, that is illegal in the state of Israel. It's a Jewish star with a raised fist in the middle of it. It's essentially fascist, and the state of Israel banned it. It is illegal to put up Kach symbols and the like because there's something dangerous about that. Um, and at the same time, we made a deal with the Iranians over the nuclear program. Clearly, there is a certain kind of there are certain elements within the Islamic world that we can negotiate and collaborate and deal with, and there are some, perhaps the most extreme of them, that we cannot. Go ahead, Hannah. Did you have a hand? No. We'll make our way around. Which is possible. Is that, that I don't have the power to, 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 to you know, I'm powerless to help change them, and I have a young child. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do I protect my child, which I think is part of what I don't know your name, but is talking about how, how to, you know, resolve that. This gets back to the Rodaif, the pursuer, the one who is in imminent danger. The pursuer. Right. Go ahead. Real quick, because we can go on this for a long time, but just to respond to what you were saying here, um, there's a lot that goes with it. So, like, I think you're kind of asking about, like, how you should react in terms of what you're finding. Um, one is I would encourage you to, like, sit with that even longer, but to not really be led by fear. Two is that what is wrong is wrong, and what ISIS is doing is wrong, and it doesn't really matter what they stand behind and cover it up with, it's still wrong. But you don't have to approve that either. 
they don't have to get your approval or your acceptance of what they're doing. You can still, like, say it's wrong, but, like, not have this fear. Is it rational to be upset against fear of ISIS? You can totally be upset. It's rational. It's we're still dealing with the limitation of sex as binary of rational, irrational. I want to acknowledge the 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 flaw in that binary and to say that this might be an example of what Sachs refers to as rational but not justified. That that's a possibility too. And not for nothing, fear is what got the Egyptians into the place that they were. He says fear is what led to the Israelites being enslaved. So that kind of fear, that's a very that can be a dangerous motivator in that way. Is there a hand over here on this side? Some things are rational and justified. That too. George, go ahead. <laughs> Not George. <laughs> Robert, go ahead. Well, I respect where he started. There is something in this section unique about Amalek. Mm-hmm. To the point you made a minute ago, there are things that arise in the world, like World War II and fascism, mm-hmm. that are just pure evil, so bad there is no negotiation. There mm-hmm. is only, unfortunately... Uh, the way to resolve it is to eliminate it. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be the state of the world probably forever. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are some terribly evil people who come along because of human condition and fear of other, and other things we talked about. Mm-hmm. But back to Amalek, um, there are these, unfortunately, extreme cases that can only be dealt with in a very special way. So, two more, and then we're going to wrap up. Go ahead, and then Richard. I, I, I imagine that eventually we, we get to the point where we talk about what is evil. Yes. And get more specific. Yes. Well, it's only 11 o'clock. Yeah, I'm, I'm running over by a few minutes because we were a few minutes late in getting started with uh, stacking the chairs, so I do want to make sure that we get the fullest conversation, but we're a couple of minutes behind. Go ahead, Richard. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, the, the, the statement that the Lord will be at war with Amalek forever mm. has a certain Manichaean aspect in the sense that Amalek almost takes on the visage of Satan. Right. That there's something demonic about this type of hatred. Yes. That you really, in effect, in that worldview where the Lord will be in conflict with Amalek forever, you can never actually eradicate it. Mm-hmm. You can only deal with it whenever you see it. And this is where I want to conclude today, is that What's interesting, Richard points out something really important. In Exodus, it says that Adonai will be at war with Amalek for throughout the ages. Our Parsha tells us something different, that we are the ones who are supposed to blot out the memory of Amalek. We are supposed to remember to forget. It puts us, it puts it in upon us, the agency, to deal with this in the world. And this is, again, where this is a very, very tricky thing and where I wanted to bring this teaching today because we're in a moment where we are seeing certain kinds of hatred on the rise and on the march, and it requires great discernment and great wisdom to pay attention, to understand what is the difference between Egypt and Amalek. Where are we dealing with something that is coming out of the fear or the 
conditions of someone who is looking for that other one to blame in ways that we might be able to actually alleviate that fear, speak to their conditions, speak to, Judith gave us, the economic realities of those who can might be uh, manipulated in service of hateful ideologies. And then we have Amalek on the other side. And it this is uh, and this is not a simple thing. This is a very complex and gray area. Ours is not a pacifistic tradition, in contrast to the American Society of Friends or other groups like that. Judaism is a tradition that sees when there is real evil on the march that sometimes good people are called upon to oppose it in various forms, not necessarily all violent. I mean, we have ways of reaching out to our elected representatives. People can peacefully protest and demonstrate. Uh, There are ways of opposing hate that aren't martial in nature. But this whole question of Amalek and Egypt, this binary, I think we're in a moment that calls for real discernment and real care and real wisdom. I appreciate this uh, comment that we have that sometimes we need to sit with our fears to really interrogate them ourselves. Sometimes that's the inside work we need to do to look at, well, is what we're dealing with Egypt or is it Amalek? Sometimes we need to look inward and other times we need to look outward. We need to talk to other people, talk to people who agree with us, talk to people who disagree with us, in fact. I'm going to reiterate, you don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And so in a moment where we do see a lot of hatred, it does beg the question, are we seeing Amalek or are we seeing Egypt in that way? What are we seeing and what is our response? It's a call for discernment and it's a call for wisdom. And with that, I'll say Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.